And we are live. Hey, folks, welcome to another episode of the Survival Podcast. If you're tuning into the live stream or you're checking out the video version uh, after uh, it's been published, either way, please know that just like it says there in the video, I will absolutely never contact you in video comments with some back channel means of communication with me like WhatsApp or something like that. Uh, I've applied some filters. It seems to be helping with the amount of scammers showing up to my videos, but I know at least one person has been scammed uh, thinking they were talking to me. I don't use WhatsApp, and if I have any desire to communicate with you uh, offline, the best way that's going to happen is by email, and my email is very public, and if you can't figure it out, I probably don't need to tell you what it is because you don't need to be emailing me because uh, I give it out like four or five days a week on the air. It probably will happen today at some point. Anyway, what are we going to do today? We have a major uh, listener feedback version of Outback with Jack today, and there's like 19 talking points, so I'm not going to list them. I'm not going to, like usually I say, we're going to talk about these things today. I'm not going to do that today, right? We're just going to roll right into it. And I want to start out, I want to uh, talk to you about our two sponsors of the day as people begin to come on into the live stream. Uh, sponsor day number one today is the Ridge Wallet. And uh, you can take a look right there on your screen if you're watching the video and see the Ridge Wallet's not just wallets anymore, but the wallet is the flagship product. I'm still carrying my wallet. It's almost five years old now, uh, and it's held up really dramatically well. I love my Ridge Wallet, uh, but they have a whole bunch of really cool stuff for EDC, so you really might want to check out RidgeWallet.com. They have been a very long-term sponsor. And uh, they've always been great to my audience. I've never had a complaint about Ridge Wallet in about five years of uh, working with them. Next up today is Backwoods Home Magazine. I've been reading Backwoods Home Magazine since I was barely a man. I mean, you know, when you're when you're 21 years old, you think you're a man, but when you're like 50 years old, you look at a 21 year old and go, "That's a kid." And that's how long it's been since I've been reading uh, Backwoods Home Magazine. I subscribed to them when I was 21 years old. Uh, when I first moved to Texas after I finished up my military service. And I've remained a subscriber ever since, and I think that if you give them a shot, you'll see why. Uh, I was very happy and very excited to bring uh, Backwoods Home on as a uh, sponsor of the show. So we've got that knocked out. Let's move on and start out with uh, kind of the first thing I want to cover with you today. This will be really, really quick. Uh, I really want to re- recommend to you guys – uh, that are out there, and obviously, if you're tuning in to me, you listen to podcasts. You should probably check out the Fountain app. It is really the best experience I've had as a as the consumer side of a podcaster. Uh, Fountain uses Lightning and Bitcoin. I know some of you aren't into that, but free money is free money, right? And so you can actually earn money just by listening to the podcast you're already listening to on Fountain. But there's just so much more. Like I said, it is the is the best experience I've had listening to podcasts, not just producing them. Like the ability to create clips. So you can take any episode you're listening to and you're like, oh, I really like that. And you hit clip and it'll take a little while for the first time it's ever had a clip out of it to transcribe it. It transcribes it into text. You still like the blocks of text. You take out what you don't want. You create, click publish, give it a title and some hashtags. And then you've created a clip of your favorite podcast. You can share with other people. Uh, in the app, or you can share it on Twitter, Facebook, wherever. You can actually save audio files of your favorite clips. And if you are a premium member on Fountain, which is stupid cheap, it's like three bucks a month, uh, you can create playlists that you keep in Fountain of your favorite clips. 
And then users are actually tipping each other back and forth with value for value. So it's not just the podcasters that are earning income on Fountain. It's the users. So if somebody really likes your clip, they might just click like. Well, that's 10 Satoshis to you, which is like not even a full penny. But you see how this works. This is an ongoing circular economy. It's really, really cool. And, again, I think if you, like, I don't care about Bitcoin, I, I think you'll just get a better experience using Fountain. So uh, I really want to recommend that you check Fountain out. Uh, next up, one more Bitcoin thing, but it's not really Bitcoin content. It's just you can come meet me if you live near Fort Worth, Texas tomorrow. Um, <clears throat> I think the meetup's at 6 or 6.30, and it's at a bookstore. Yeah, it's not really a bookstore. A bookstore in downtown Fort Worth. It is like actually a bar with like a cool speakeasy vibe. And there's a meetup group for it. It's called Fort Bitcoin. And when this video ends, uh, I will go ahead and uh, make sure in the show notes where there's a link in this video where you can find uh, the meetup group if you want to. But it's called Fort Bitcoin, and it's on, you know, meetup. It's a regular meetup on meetup.com. So I just wanted you guys to know about that as well in case you want to uh, come check things out and meet me and have – I'm going to have an old-fashioned. This is, looks like a place – Well, when you order an old-fashioned, they're not dumping schnapps in the glass, right? They know how to actually make an old-fashioned properly. Let's go on to start uh, answering your questions. Most of this came in on MeWe, and it's all over the place. It's homesteading stuff. It's aquaponics stuff. It's livestock. It is uh, hydro. It's uh, pastured animals. It's tons of stuff. It's finding like-minded people, building community, It's some topical stuff like the Dutch Farmers Revolt, just a ton of stuff. So first question that I had on, on the MeWe group was, what about growing freshwater, pond, uh, freshwater prawns as a way to produce food on the homestead? And this is something that's come up an awful lot uh, over the years. And every time I've looked into it, this is what I've come away with. If you want to do this, you need a substantial body of water and you need a lot of information and knowledge and skill and everything has to be done properly to get this to work. And there are a lot of uh, growers, especially in South Texas, where we have a longer summer, right, longer summer season because they cannot handle cold water. They just can't. Here come the F-35s again. It's like they know when I'm broadcasting. Somebody from Lockheed down the road is uh, – is ordering me strafe. But um, it, it, listening to, so what I did for the research, I went and listened to people doing it professionally, meaning they're doing it for profit. And it's encouraging and discouraging at the same time in that it works, but these guys, they, they work really hard and like one thing goes wrong and they've blown their profit for the year. It's not as simple as you just put them in there and they grow. Uh, they have to be spawned. Uh, most of them, even if they're freshwater prawns, what that actually means is they can survive in freshwater, but they don't necessarily breed in freshwater. So they need, let's say, brackish water to breed in. They need a very specific set of circumstances to breed. And then there's a lot of things that can go wrong in a pond where they'll, you know, just kind of up and die or they won't reach market size by the end of the year. However, this is being done even in places like Tennessee, uh, so it can be done with the right set of controls. Up there, what they're doing is they're actually partnering with, like, distilleries and using uh, the spent mash grain as part of their feedstock for them, so that's a great thing. 
But for the backyard producer, if you can show me someone who's done it, I'll admit I'm wrong. And even somebody that has like a decent sized pond, I think that it makes a lot more sense if you have an analog to something that lives where you live already, that's native to your area, that doesn't require any special treatment and is just as good or almost as good as the thing that you want, that you run with that. So what is that in North America? The humble crawfish, the mini freshwater lobster, right? Um, and there's really simple ways to kind of systematize crawfish production. You need basically shallow ponds, and you don't want a lot of fish in there that eat crawfish, right? Because if your crawfish is your production crop, uh, you really don't want to do that. And the commercial operations that are very successful, they're quite large. But what they do is they just run crawfish traps, which especially in your own pond is completely legal to do. And then they go out and they run their traps once a day, and they have a sorter, which is basically just – um, a screen, a wooden, more like with slats, like a wood slat box. And they dump the crawfish in and any of them that fall through the slats are too small and the big ones get harvested. I think that would be really easy to replicate in like a tenth acre or larger pond. And I think you could produce a ton of crawfish that way. Uh, and I would grow, I wouldn't try to grow like the special crawfish that's the biggest ever or whatever. I would grow the crawfish that are indigenous to where you live or indigenous as close as possible to the climate in which you live. So there are crawfish in Pennsylvania that are different subspecies than crawfish in Louisiana. So that's what I'm talking about. I have one other option for you guys. So you're not going to do this, and I'm going to put this up on the screen. You're not going to do this at large scale, okay? But I have a friend who grows these things in fish tanks in his house, And they're called giant river prawns. And, and for those watching the video, you probably just went, whoa, when I put that up. They are massive critters. And here's the good news about them. This is the really good news about them. And uh, <laughs> I'll comment on that later, Mike. Um, you can often find a local fish store that sells feeder prawns for pennies. A piece. Like you go get a hundred of them and you feed them to your, you know, predator fish or whatever. Not always. Most of the time it's these guys. These guys are actually not that hard to get to breed, but they will eat each other and they will kill each other and they will fight each other. And if they're in a tank together, even the ones that don't kill each other, especially the males, you see the blue claws. So one will brighten up his claws and be like the dominant asshole in the system. And all the other males that don't get killed will be subservient to him. And it takes a while before you can tell male from female, from my understanding, from my buddy who grows these things in the house. But they are delicious. They taste a lot like, I would say they taste a little more like lobster than shrimp. Uh, they're very common in Southeast Asia. They actually fish for them like a little piece. Of, like, like if you've ever done crabs where you put a chicken neck down, they kind of do the same thing and they pull them up and they're so greedy they won't let go. Something to know about them. When they get big like this one here, Uh, don't, be careful doing what this guy's doing. They will they will cut you like a razor blade with those thin claws. I mean, they will cut right into you like a razor blade. They are you can't keep them with smaller fish. They'll literally like a fish will swim by and they'll just reach up and cut it like a scissor straight in half. But my friend that raises these, he will put like one in different tanks or maybe I maybe I don't know if he does males and females or not. Uh, but he'll do that. And in one season, they get bigger than the one that's in the picture. In one season, from a little tiny itty bitty thing at the fish store, 
And I think he raises like 18 to 24 of these a year, and he puts them on the table like for Christmas or Thanksgiving as a novelty thing. I think this can be done at a bit more of a homestead production level, but I don't know anybody that's done it yet. What it's going to require is something like an IBC would be ideal because it's a big vertical space, so an international bolt container. Top cut off, not chop and flip like aquaponics. Give yourself as much vertical as possible and build basically prawn apartments, which would be a series of like, these guys get big, so like probably two-inch PVC pipe. It's an experiment that would get really expensive right now, but I think if you gave enough places and different levels for them to occupy, that they would tend to do that, and they do grow fast. That's that's the best thing here I can advise, either crayfish or um, trying these guys out. And again, they're, they're freshwater river prawns. Uh, they're called giant freshwater river prawns. And most fish stores that sell feeder prawns, that's what they sell. That's what they sell. However, however, um, I'm not guaranteeing you that. So you'll need to ask. And if they're not informed enough to know, they're like two cents a piece. Buy some and let them start growing and let them eat each other and see if, uh, if you, uh, if it works out for you. But that, that's, you know, that's what I got for you, uh, on that one. Next up, I had a question about a bell siphon. So one of the people on MeWe says, I have a system that's been running for two years, an aquaponic system. I have an ebb and flow bed in it. It has worked fine for two years. And so for those that don't know, an ebb and flow bed, the bed fills up with water. It gets to the top. And then it, so that's the ebb in, and then it flows out, or it flows in and ebbs out. You can switch it around. I don't think it really that matters. But flood and drain is another way to, to look at this. And a bell siphon is a device we take a bulkhead and put it, a penetration in the bottom of the of the uh, of the the bed itself, the container. So it's to be a water tight container. We fill it with some sort of media, like leca, which are the little marbles or lava rock or expanded shale or something. And we put plants in it, and then we have fish in the tank, and then the the system runs and the water fills up. It brings nutrients water to the to the plants, and then it dumps back out. And that way, the plant roots get oxygen. That's the big reason for the ebb and flow portion of the ebb and flow that you want to have. You don't want those roots immersed in water and media at all times. You want this, this constant up and down, up and down. Now, so that's a good idea, Mark, but you got to get them to big enough to fit in the cage. I'm going to talk about that. That's, that's a good idea. We'll talk about it at the end. So anyway, I tried all kinds of tricks with ebb and flow. And so the siphon sits over top of your stand up pipe. That sets the, how high the water comes up. And when the water reaches the stand-up pipe, it starts pouring over, eventually creates a siphon, and it dumps out, and it fills, and it dumps out. And they're great because there's no moving parts. As long as the pump's running at the right speed and it doesn't change, the siphon functions. This is usually what happens when an ebb and flow pump or an ebb and flow siphon stops working. The pump has either begun to move water too quickly or too slow. So too slow usually means clean your pump. And then control your valve. You usually should have a valve that controls how fast the water goes into the tank. And usually that'll fix the problem. But in, in some instances, you, this isn't going to become an ongoing problem. You go out there and your bed is stuck either at the top or the bottom, depending on what the problem is. The other thing that can happen is you have a pump and it's kind of performance has diminished a little bit because it's got some gook in it. And so you go out and you don't realize that's what's wrong. You don't clean your pump. And you adjust it, you turn it a little bit faster, 
you give it a little bit more velocity and your thing starts working again. And then the worst thing, uh, happens that, that gook comes out. Like it just clears itself. And now you're going way faster than you wanted. And instead of being stuck at the top, which is bad. So your bed's all the way full with water because that sucks. But your, your plants can live quite a while if you, for you, before you catch that, before it's really a problem because you do have water movement. So you do have oxygen, right? When it sticks at the bottom, they're not getting any water. So when it's moving too fast, what will happen is the siphon uh, won't break. So it'll just stay stuck at the bottom. So it can stay stuck at the bottom or stuck at the top. Both of those are bad. If it's not going fast enough, it won't start the siphon. And if it's not going slow enough, the siphon won't break at the bottom. So what this person said is, do you do, do you think I should just fix it or should I redesign it? And my thing is I've gone to nothing but timer-based systems. And I have a video that I'm not going to play today because if you're listening to the audio version of it, 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 it won't make sense. You can look the video up if, if it does not make sense to you. But this is, when I explain this, if you have trouble understanding it, just understand that you are making it hard. And I, I'm not insulting anybody or anything. It's just, it is so simple that it's hard. It's one of those things. It's so simple, it's hard to understand. So instead of one hole, one bulkhead, one penetration into the bed, you put two in. Simple. So stop there before you make it complicated. You have two places that water can get into and out of a watertight container. Yeah? You run a pipe to one of them, and you don't put any kind of stand-up. So the bulkhead is all the way at the bottom of the tub, and you run a pipe there, and on the other end of that pipe is your pump. Your pump pumps water in from the bottom, and it fills the bed up. The other hole, you put a stand-up pipe in, which simply means I put a piece of PVC pipe in there, And I put it at the height that I want the water to reach at its highest point. So when the pump kicks on, this is simple. Pump kicks on, water begins to fill up the bed. And when it gets to the height of the stand-up pipe, it starts overrunning, and the level stays there. Now your timer turns off. Your pump goes off. There's no pressure going to that delivery side. And the water goes back down into the tank. So 15 minutes on, 15 minutes off. 15 minutes on, 45 minutes off, you have complete control over your cycle rate. My most successful cycle rate is 15 on, 45 off. It takes about 10 minutes usually for a big tank to completely drain. So then you end up with about 40 minutes without delivery. In my summers, when it gets really hot, I go to a 1530. And I use a little $8 timer, and you just push down pins. You push down a pin, it's 15 minutes on. You push down two pins, it's 30 minutes on. So you want to go 1545, you push one pin down every hour. It's simple. If it doesn't make sense, watch the video. My personal opinion, I just had an aquaponics guy on that was a true expert. He doesn't like using the time system. He likes bell siphons. That's fine. My personal opinion, I will never build one with a bell siphon again unless there's a reason. What would the reason be? I don't know. I'm building such a large system that I need, need to. I, I don't know. I... I have found this to be so much easier and have so much lower of a failure rate. It is what I am doing forever. If you watch the video, if you didn't understand what I just said, I think you will find that it is really the easiest easiest thing that you can do. Uh, next up, I want to talk to you about something, and this is somebody emailed me this about a week ago, and I kind of blown away that I, I really didn't know about this particular breed of chicken. 
and uh, it's called an American Best Chicken, um, and it's actually a French breed. And I, I, I guess I did know about them that I've uh, American Breast Chicken, B R E S S E, is how you spell it, because I have heard about these chickens in France, and. But I didn't know we had brought the breed to the United States. This is a white chicken. It looks like your conventional chicken. They look a lot like a Cornish cross, except they don't look like mutants. And I'm going to play this segment from this YouTube channel called Living Traditions Homestead. They have 700,000 subscribers. They seem to do good content. I did ask them. You can see right here. I asked them if it would be okay to do what I'm about to do now, and I did that about a week ago, and I haven't heard back. So I assume there's no problem here. So I'm going to go ahead and play a few minutes of this video for you, and uh, then I'm going to come back and talk about why I want to work with this chicken breed and how we might be able to do that as a community a little bit. Kind of chickens that we raise here on the homestead. The chickens we had, they were fine chickens. They were, they were great. Uh, they were primarily egg layers. We wanted to switch to something that could easily be used for both eggs and as a meat breed. For years and years and years, we have raised Cornish Cross chickens for our meat, and they're wonderful. Nothing can beat the amount of meat in a short amount of time that you can get from a Cornish Cross chicken. But we really wanted something more sustainable. The last couple of years, it's been difficult to get Cornish Cross chicks from the hatcheries, and we didn't want to find ourselves in a position where we couldn't get them and we needed meat chickens. So we looked into a bunch of different meat and egg breeds, dual-purpose chicken breeds, and we decided on one that really isn't very popular here in the United States. It's called the Bress Chicken. It's spelled B-R-E-S-S-E. And it is originally from France, but there was one farm that wanted to import the breast chickens from France to the United States. And those are the lines of the American breast chickens that we have here now on our farm. We chose the American breast chickens because they're a little bit different than the chickens that you typically find here in the United States. Uh, they lay very early. They can lay as early, start, they can start laying as early as 16 weeks, which is really uncommon. Most chicken breeds, they don't start laying until six months. It could be longer for larger breed chickens. So that was very appealing to us. Also, they grow fast, not quite as fast as the Cornish cross chickens or other hybrid meat chickens, but for a dual purpose chicken, they grow quickly. They are a butcher size at about 16 weeks. Now, these chickens that we have here, these American breast chickens, they are just over 16 weeks, so they should start laying any time now. We have a little bit of work to do with them, though. We have way more roosters than we need, and we have three hens. So on the next nice day, not when it's so scorching hot and humid and terrible, we will be downsizing our flock by processing the roosters, and those will end up in the freezer. We have three hens. We'll keep two roosters, one for breeding and one just as backup, and we'll start expanding our flock. Once they start laying, we will start hatching and increasing the size of our flock. You guys, they're doing fantastic. They're so uh, that's the basics of it. And 
so as soon as I saw this, I've been kicking around ramping up my little play project that I did with uh, Billy Roy Bob, uh, the uh, the old English game rooster, and Buff Warpington hens, and going to full-size birds with that. And for one reason or another, I just haven't gotten there yet. And when I saw these, I was like, you know what? I'll give those a chance. So I went to see if I could get some. And someone here said, Crystal said, McMurray Hatchery has them. Well, McMurray Hatchery has a picture of them and an order button on the website, but it also says sold out. And I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 bucks a bird. I did find one other place that had them for order right now. They were like $24 a chick. And anybody who's ever ordered chicks through the mail knows you always have some level of uh, of issue with chicks dying in the mail and things like that. But when I when I look at 20 bucks a bird, I, I don't think I'm going to do that, especially since I'm going to get straight run and I'm going to likely get all siblings. Like if you order... 10 chickens, 20 chickens, it's it's highly probable that just based on how hatcheries batch things, that you're going to get highly related birds. Maybe not. I'm not sure of that. But I'd rather know a little bit more that I have some genetic diversity in there. And so my thought long term is I would like to get my hands on some of these. And I am finding people, but the hatch rates seem to be low. Like the hatch rates that people are guaranteeing are like 50%. I think it's just because eggs in shipping especially, and I don't even want to do it in summer, right? Um, tend to get knocked around a bit. And it's not so much that they get physically damaged, but temperature swings and stuff like that. There's a big difference in collecting eggs for 10 days and putting them on your countertop in a 70-degree home and then putting them all in an incubator at one time and them going into a box and being shipped across the country. One like today's high here is going to be like 108. Like So I'm, I'm not about doing that right now. But eggs do ship. And my thought is that maybe if there is enough interest in the TSP community and enough of us are willing to acquire some, including, like, I will actually pay $20 a bird to give this a shot. I'm just not doing it in summer when they're likely to die in the heat, right? Um, it would be interesting if we could start having several members of the TSP community raising their own American breasts. And then the easiest thing to ship, obviously, is an egg. And we can start developing a lot of genetic diversity. With that, it's just something that I would uh, be interested in. Now, Crystal says there's 644 each on Murray. Uh, I just looked, didn't realize they were sold out. If you check back, they only go out to September. So uh, seven bucks, I'm in. I'm in. I guess maybe the $20 comes from another supplier. The people that do have them are charging a real premium right now. When a YouTuber that size puts something out like that, you know there's a lot of demand generated and you have heavy demand in homesteading in general, and you have heavy demand during a low time anyway. This is not the best time for hatching birds, obviously, because of heat and things like that. Egg laying goes down. We have another question on that in a bit. We're heading to the molt, right? So we're going to head to our six-week molt period in about, I think here, we should start our molt period in about two weeks. We're going to pre-molt where the birds start to look a little rough, and then you know, during, through the molt, they don't lay hardly anything at all, ducks especially, but chickens too. And then you come back out on the other side of that. So this is interesting to me because I think that this would be a really interesting project. And someone here said that they were really looking forward to Buff Orpingtons. What I love about Buff Orpingtons 
is the broody nature of them. And that's why these little hybrids I made, they're the broodiest damn things I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I have birds on eggs everywhere right now. I mean, I have one, I put it up on Instagram. If you guys have seen it, she's in a flower pot on the patio with 11 eggs in the flower pot. And she's like a freak. She's like a, she like a seagull. Every time you go near her with her freaking out. Um, I've got one in one of the big wicking beds up in the wicking bed. I had to build her a little shade tower and what have you. It's uh, it's interesting how broody they are. So my thought with these is that if you had nothing but all your roosters were breasts and you had breast hens, then you have a certain number of your eggs that are going to be 100% breasts. And as, as valuable as these things seem right now, you'd want that. But if you throw a few... Buff Orbingtons in there and let them hybridize with that. As long as you cull your roosters before they go uh, injecting their idiocracy back into the genetics, you, you 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 would then have only hens of your hybrids, and we see what happens there. You might get a hell of a big hybrid because these. The reason I played that video for you, I could have explained everything those folks did. I wanted you to see them. Those were 16 week old birds. And those the the cockerels had some legs on them, and I have heard that this is the best eating chicken in the world. Uh, it, it's been claimed over and over. Of course, the French think everything they do is the best thing in the world, right? French wine, French cheese, French chicken. But uh, there's a lot going on with that. Additionally, though, don't discount the diet, the climate, and the preparation. So. I have a feeling that if I raise a breast chicken here on TSP Ranch, uh, Nine Mile Farm, it may not compare to one raised by a family who's been doing nothing but raising the French breast chicken, you know, for the last 150 years in France with a, uh, with, with a chef who was, you know, trained in the French Culinary Institute or whatever. So, uh, there is something to terroir and things beyond grapes, right? So, but I, I'm really interested in this, and if you're interested in maybe participating in this, you should email me. Like I said, most public email on planet Earth, Jack at the Survival Podcast.com. That's a real hard code to crack, isn't it, folks? Jack at the Survival Podcast. Who would have ever thought, right? Anyway, you email me with that. TSPC chickens in the subject line, and maybe we can get something going. Uh, I think this is, this is some real potential, and I think that long term, eventually there probably will be enough population of this that the novelty might not be there. But this has actually been going, I think the last line that came in, came in in 2017. And there's still not a huge population of them. Right now, you can sell chicken eggs for $2 a dozen. Or you can sell fertile American breast hatching eggs if you can if you can find somebody. They're selling $20, $30 a dozen because people just want the birds. I don't care if you cut that in half. That's... That's good pocket side money. I think there'd be a lot that we could, uh, could, could do with this. And I'm just interested in playing around with it. If nothing else, we raise some chickens and eat them. I want to say one more thing too. I'm going to have, uh, Billy Bond on the show soon. Uh, he's an awesome dude for those of you that don't know him. And he has kind of taken in, in, in United States eyes or Americanized Jeff Lawton's chicken tractor on steroids. His son actually went, I think he spent six months at the PRI with Jeff Lawton and they've developed their system together, including how they, they source feed for their chickens from places like Chipotle, like the throwaway vegetables and stuff. And 
his presentation in Tennessee on that was fascinating. I asked him to come on the show, and I also have asked him to present at the TSP workshop this November, and I've gotten a yes to both of those. So I think you guys are going to enjoy meeting Billy. And, and why is this important? Because when people are worried about, well, I could race this Cornish Cross in eight weeks, ten weeks, whatever, versus 16 weeks, the real thing anybody's worried about there is what? The cost of feed. If your feed costs nothing, do you care? And I think quality takes time. So I'm really interested in exploring this further. And, again, if you're interested, Jack, at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC chicken in the subject line, and especially if you already have some stock. If you already have this breed and you're working with this breed and you have a, a rooster-hen ratio or some way where you can guarantee if you ship eggs that they're, they're pure, uh, they're all breast, 100%, or you're willing to sell them for less because, you know, maybe one is crossed with an Orpington or something, right? But it's going to be really obvious. Like, you don't have any other pure white breed uh, in your in your flock. Then it's going to be really obvious that these are breasts and these are some sort of cross or hybrid. I would be interested, really interested in helping you reach out to other people in the community. And let's start getting this thing going because it sure seems like the solution to the thing that we've been batting around a long time. I would love to be able to hatch my own meat chickens and have a truly high-quality meat chicken. I don't care if it's quick to grow. I don't care how marketable it is. I don't give a shit about selling it. I really don't. I don't think that there's a lot of money in selling chicken as a producer. Hey, just start running the numbers. People are selling chickens for $20, $25 a bird, pastured chicken. They're competing with birds that are 6 7 bucks at the grocery store. They used to be 4 right? Um And it's a hard sell because a lot of people are just convinced chicken's supposed to be cheap. The reality is chicken should cost more than beef because there's a lot more work to raise a chicken than there is a cow. It's a cow. It eats grass. Chickens have more needs. Now, they graze faster, but but then start doing the math. If you're selling chickens for 20, 20 bucks a bird and you're making $15, you're hitting a home run. And you sell a 1,000 chickens, you just made 15 grand. You ain't making minimum wage. If it's an add-on to other things, great. And I think it's a great entry point into the market, but it is not something you can make a lot of money doing. And most of you guys in my audience, I just know you're not in it to be a full-time farmer. Now, if you can grow them and pay your expenses by selling a few to some neighbors and fill your freezer, now we got some. And if we can, you, you got to look at it this way. If I'm not paying two, three bucks a bird for my chicks, if my chicks are the cost of, you know, a couple pennies into the incubator or a good broody mother, then I'm printing meat instead of printing money, which is the same as printing money. So that, that's my thought on it. Moving on. Uh, I got a question on drought proofing a pasture straight up front. I am not an expert in this. Uh, never claimed to be as far as like grazing and pasture management. Um, I'm a pretty good permaculture designer and I know components of it from that, but this is, this is the reality of drought-proofing pasture. It's, it's as much about managing herd size as it is what you do with the pasture. So probably the all-time grandmaster ninja at this, and, and he's uh, moved on to doing almost exclusively sheep, uh, but he still has tons of content you can learn more about. Look up Greg Judy on, uh, on YouTube, and it makes me think of an article of his I read a long time ago where he talked about how they had a severe drought, and all they did was sell off a big piece of their, their their herd early, keep the best, most potential for high meat yield at the end of the cycle, 
And then they went on vacation and turned it over to their interns and came back and nothing bad happened. Where he, he pointed out that the most common thing that a rancher would have done, and this was during the year we had a big hay shortage because everybody was buying in hay, um, would have bought hay. And when he ran the numbers down, you're like, well, that's stupid. And that's, that's what I love about Greg. He's like, you know, you do the thing that makes you the most money. That's option one. And option two is if you know you're going to lose money this year, you lose the least money possible. That's option two. Option three is you go out of business. And so I would say pasture management is critical. The next thing is the thing that actually makes any plant drought proof, there's really no such thing if you're thinking about it, meaning this thing can live where there isn't water. That's not how it works. You take any plant, you take away all moisture, it will die. You take a freaking air plant, right? It doesn't even have roots. It lives on the side of a, of a tree, And you make it in a, all those plants, you get them in a most uh, enough of an arid environment, they'll die. You get these trees, these uh, juniper trees that live in the desert, and they stay alive. Everything's dead around them. They're alive. The reason they're alive, they have root systems that are 70 feet deep. So we have to start with a place where roots have the ability to get down deep. So like my property, it's not happening. We're doing everything we can to keep, like, mature, established native trees from dying this year. That's how bad the tree. I have a stream, okay, that is five miles from my house that I've, I've been here nine years. I've never seen it not running. It's not running right now. The stream stopped. So this is drought. This is extreme drought that we're dealing with. But I have no doubt that many of the things I did here, if I lived in a place where it's 30 foot before you saw a rock level, a rock layer, We'd be doing just fine. And when it comes to pasture, what you want to do is you want to success your pasture into perennial grass as quickly as you can. And that's just, again, good grazing practices. Good perennial grasses will have roots that are 16, 17 foot deep. That alone will reestablish water tables because they open carbon pathways down into the soil that deep. So not only can they access The water that's down there, when it freaking rains, the water goes down there in the first place. We did have one good rain this year, and it had been so long since we hadn't had a good rain that the water literally didn't go in the ground. I mean, we got about three-quarters of an inch, and two days later, the ground was dusty, dead, dry. And that's what my, you know, my management practices, which are damn good, We didn't end up with a three-quarter inch rain. We didn't end up with a drop of water in the bottom of the swales. So you do have to start with land that this can even be done with. The next thing is trees. And this is so counterintuitive, but to me, civo pasture model is one of the – so you have deep-rooted perennial grasses, and then you have trees in lines that form patterns. And we're going to talk about swales in a bit. So it may be on swales. It may not be. It depends on the landform, your goals, et cetera, what's your annual rainfall, what does drought mean to you. Drought to me means a hell of a lot different than drought means to people in New York. I have friends from upstate New York who are like, we're having a drought. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, it hadn't rained in 20 days. Shut up. That is not a drought. It is to them because they're used to more rainfall. Just good quality pasture is going to walk through that like it didn't even happen. right? They mean drought because they're, they're stupid lawn. Of, of Bermuda grass is dying or whatever. And it's not even dying, it's going dormant. Uh, but good trees as well, and this is important for your animal's welfare, 
If you saw all the animals that died during the big heat wave, <clears throat> and of course the conspiracy theorists started, the government killed them. The amount of animals that died was inconsequential to the food supply. Not everything's a conspiracy, guys, as per my show, my, my segment on Friday. Um, if you, that same weekend that that happened, I was at Nicole Sauce's house because I'd gone up to Tennessee to speak at Self-Reliance Festival. Her sheep were panting like dogs. I was really afraid for her. She was going to lose some or all of them. And there wasn't no government agent killing them there, right? Uh, so when you have shade and you have that deep root system of the trees helping water to infiltrate, you also have a place for your animals. And that's that plus possibly doing swales, depending on what your design goals are. And I'm going to leave that because we're going to talk about swales in a second. Uh, but often... With this type of a system, if you're doing a grazing system, we don't need great big swales. You could do this with a plow, right, or just a dozer with an angled blade. You have little bitty swales. You just walk across, and you plant your hardy pioneering trees on the back side of the swale, and your, you know, swales that need a little more support on the front side of the swale. And maybe we do something, uh, to, you know, like we put about 10 foot to the rear and 10 foot to the front from those trees. And then those trees, over time, as they grow up, actually become fence posts to run a electric line. And then basically we graze in between them. And those good grazing practices, not only knowing when to reduce your, your herd density, but the grazing practices over time themselves, as they put carbon into the soil, help the drought-proof the, the pasture. That's as good as I can do in a short segment. Uh, next question I had was uh, from Joel, who will be at my house Friday this week, delivering our new puppy, Joel of Fortress Canine. Shout out to you if you're there in the live audience or you catch us on the Memorex. Um, he asked me a question. When you replace rapid rooter uh, hydroponic grow plugs, you can use those, of course, for hydroponics or aquaponics, either one. They're a little kind of peat moss-looking spongy thing, and you grow plants in them. I've recommended them a long time, and they're great. And one of the things I said that makes them more affordable, because they're not that expensive to begin with, is you can reuse them. And he said his are starting to get algae on them. He's having germination issues, et cetera. So I get rid of them when they physically wear out to the point where they don't really seem like they're holding together anymore. And uh, then I just throw them in the compost pit, and the heat of the compost action breaks them down, and they disappear. So I don't get rid of them because they have algae on them. So what do you do? This is what I do. I take a bowl, you know, because you're not going to do 100 at a time. You might do 20 or 30 at a time. I take a little Tupperware bowl. I've got to put it back or my wife yells at me. I fill it up with about 50% water and 50% plain old hydrogen peroxide like you get at the, the, the grocery store or the, the drug store. So that's like 60 cents a bottle since the Karen stopped buying it by the gallon to, to prevent COVID from happening. And uh, you throw them in there and you soak them for about just about 10 minutes. Squeeze them out real good. You can throw more in there. You can use a solution to do a hundred of them if you want to, but I'd about 20 at a time. Set them out in the sun. And between the action of the, the peroxide and the UV intensity of the sun, and they'll dry out over about a day. They'll be stiff little things, right? Then just put them back in some water to hydrate them. You can even throw a little, like maybe 10% uh, hydrogen peroxide in there the time you do this to kind of give them, because it's not going to hurt your plants to have hydrogen peroxide. And then put them in a Ziploc bag so they stay moist. You don't want to store them dried out. And then you're good. You can use them again. You have to decide how many missions has this thing accomplished 
Is it time to buy new ones or am I willing to do this again? But there's no biochemical reason that they won't keep working forever. They're pretty much inert. They don't really do anything. Um, I find them to be, a, for those of you guys that use rock wool and stuff, I find them to be a lot more forgiving than that and, frankly, a lot more environmentally friendly. Um, rock, wool, some, rock wool is some pretty nasty stuff, really. The more I dug into it, the more I came to that conclusion. So uh, that's that one. Next one, um, person asked me a complex question about swales specific to their property. Uh, they have a fairly steep property, not super steep, but it's a good amount of incline, about five acres, so it's not small. They have a pond already at the lower. And the real question was, do I start out at the bottom with my swales and connect to the pond that's already there, or would I start out at the top? I don't know, and I'm not going to pretend that I do. I would have to spend at least an hour with this person to understand their goals for the property. And they could tell me their goals in two or three sentences. And that doesn't mean it's their goals. A good consultant, when you're consulting for a business, when you're consulting for a permaculture install, anything that involves a human element, the first thing you analyze is the human. And then you remember, remember the show house MD. I used to love that show. It kind of was based on Sherlock Holmes. That's why Wilson, Dr. Wilson, Dr. Watson, all that stuff, right? Everybody lies. That's Dr. House, right? And that's what they should have stuck to that theme through the whole series and not gotten so much in the soap opera shit, uh, kept it a medical mystery show, and everybody lies. And so no matter what his patient said, he would, like, send his lackeys to go investigate their house or something. You know, Are you taking drugs? No. He's like, everybody lies, right? So a lot of times people lie, and they don't even know they're lying. So I say to you, how many hours a week are you going to spend on your homestead working on your permaculture system? You say 20 hours. Everybody lies. So I'm going to analyze you. I'm going to actually look at your property, make an evaluation of what you really are going to do, and I'm going to design to the minimum. You might not be lying when you say 20, but if I determine the minimum, like you're going to go at least 10, I'm going to design a system that's going to be okay, maybe not optimal, but okay at 10. Then I'm going to have to make sure that we're clear on what your strategy is. Once we have your actual strategy, what you want this property to do, now we can talk about techniques and tactics. So a swale is a technique. Where it's implemented is a tactic. So we're asking for the technique and tactic without the strategy and without a client analysis. So this is why I recommend when people say, what do I do? Contact Nick Ferguson at homegrownliberty.com. Have him come to your site, pay him his damn money, because he'll save you ten times what you would have lost if you did not do it. That Unless you're comfortable doing this yourself. And I would still maybe have a remote consult with Nick. And I get questions at times, well, I live up in Maryland or whatever, and uh, do you have somebody to recommend up here? And the answer is I don't. I have one permaculture consultant that I've been able to consistently recommend, and it doesn't blow up in my face, and that's Nick Ferguson. If I find another one, I'll recommend another one. Nick and I are brothers, man. You know, we're like bros. Uh, but, you know, I know that times he has more work than he can handle. And I should be charging him a damn referral fee for all the work I send him. But, yeah, um, he's very good. And he, the thing is, if he says he's going to show up, he's going to show up. Here's an example of why I don't recommend other people. I had a guy. He's local here in DFW. He's a great designer. He's well-educated. I had a person I referred him to or referred to him who rented heavy equipment, and the guy at the last minute said, I have to teach a class and didn't show up for two days, so he's paying for an excavator to sit and do nothing for 48 hours. 
How many more times do you think I'm referring to that guy? Never. Never, ever, ever, never, ever, never, ever, never again, ever. So consultant to make this decision because a swale is a much bigger deal than I think people think that it is. It is a semi-permanent alteration to a significant portion of the landscape. And it's not always the right solution. And for those that don't know, I should have said this at the beginning, a swale is a ditch on contour, meaning it's a level ditch across a significant length of space, and it spreads water out and soaks it in and infiltrates it into the landscape, if you're not familiar with swales. Um, and then we plant into them, and they are primarily tree-growing systems, though we can use swale-like features, smaller walkways, paths to accomplish the same thing at a smaller level, and then they're not that big a deal. If you're thinking about putting a couple small swales in your backyard, And it's something, a job you're going to do with a wheelbarrow and a shovel. And it doesn't work out. You take a road cove, you pull all the dirt back in, and it goes away. You start moving dirt with an excavator, you've made a significant impact. And you have, you have played with physics and hydrology. And bad things can and do happen if you do it wrong. You can channel a whole bunch of water to a place it really wasn't supposed to go. So, consultant. But I did think there maybe I could give you a good way to think about this today. Right. So here's my first rule. This is right from Jeff himself. That's who I learned it from. When you put a swale based system in, there are only three things you can do after you've done it with everything that's in between. Thank you, Mike, for the $20 super chat. I really appreciate it. So um, you put that swale based system in, you plant trees along the swales, you've basically created a civil pasture mimic system. You've got trees and you've got inner swale, in other words, a space between top swale, middle swale, bottom swale. That space is the inner swale is what we call it. And that's where I'm saying you only have three things you can do with that space between the swales. You can fill it, you can crop it, i.e. alley cropping, or you can graze it. There is nothing else you can do. And to be clear with that, when I say graze it, if you mow it, I call that mechanical grazing. It's not as good a solution as grazing goats or sheep or cows, but it's still like I'm, I'm putting, I'm trying to make it simple. You can either maintain it as a grassland. You can grow crops in it. Mark uh, Shepard, for instance, on New Forest Farm, in his early years, while he's waiting for the trees to come into production, he grew organic zucchini and farmed it, so he cropped it, or you can fill it. Fill it is where we turn the whole thing into like a zone four food forest where it's all trees and it's all canopied in. That's it. So you start right there. I look at this design. Am I going to want to graze it, crop it, crop it for a time, and move over to grazing it, or do I want to fill it? If I don't have that answer, I'm not ready to decide that the technique I want to employ is a swale because I have no idea how to come up with a tactic that goes with a strategy that I have not yet formed. Okay. Then the next thing is to understand what are the five primary functions of a swale because this will help us determine how they fit in our strategy or if they fit in our strategy. And everybody thinks it's to fill dams and it's to, to infiltrate water. That's one. But number one is it's, it prevents erosion. If you do it right... It reduces erosion. So when people say, well, I have sandy soil. I can't use swales because it doesn't hold water. Most erosive soil that you could have is sandy. It's the easiest thing to erode. So a system that reduces erosion might be right for your situation once you have your strategy. Number two, it spreads fertility. 
So when we do get rain, which I've kind of forgot what it looks like now, but when we get a good rain, it'll come back. It's a, it's a, a weather cycle. We're in an El Nino, La Nina year is what it really is this year. Uh, when those ducks right now, they're out there pooping in the swales all the time, and they're pooping on the upside of the swales. When we get a good rain event and that manure and all of the the, uh, the organic matter is in that swale, because the water spreads out evenly, it takes the fertility with us. It also fills dams and manages overflow. So this guy said he had a dam at the bottom. So if I was consulting with him and we were talking about putting a swale into that dam, well, how does that dam function right now? Does it get lower than we want it? Does it overflow? When it overflows, does it create a problem? Is there another good dam site on the same level where we could put a second dam in and connect the two with a swale? And then there's, is there an ideal place to create an overflow that's not directly adjacent to the dam? These would be questions that I would be asking, and I'm going to make decisions based on those answers. Um, the next thing it does is it creates a design pattern. A lot of times it makes sense to take a laser level, especially on a larger property, get some cheap flags, flag out four or five would-be swales, because you put the flags there, it doesn't mean you have to dig them, and, and then map the property with the pattern and say, what would I do if I had swales here? And then start asking yourself questions. Does this get in the way of my access? Because we design for water access structure. We don't want to design access out. Does this interfere with what I want? How much rain do I get? How how likely is it that these swells will benefit my system sufficient to the energy necessary to go into them? If I want to put a lot of little ponds and dams in, I probably want to put swells in. Back to drought-proofing the pasture from earlier. If I have ponds all over the place and I have ponds high in the landscape, and I can use ponds to irrigate, am I not more drought-proof? You see how that works. So all of this stuff plays together. But that's how to think about swales. And when you start thinking about major earthworks on your property, get a consultant. I am not telling you Nick Ferguson's the only one that's good. I, he's the only one I have a direct relationship with that I trust to not bite me in the ass. Somebody has somebody that's good? Let me know. Because... Nick Ferguson probably doesn't want to go to Washington State, or you don't want to pay Nick's travel fee for him to go to Washington State. Uh, but I, I hear tell it might be that Nick Ferguson might be in my area uh, near the beginning of October and might be available for some things for a reason that we talked about in the chat last time that we were here with a bunch of people. Next up, um, somebody asked me on MeWe, totally different subject, are we throwing the baby out with the bathwater looking for a true true privacy secure social media platform, one that won't sell your data and stuff like that. I, I don't know. You know, I, I'm using Twitter again. Let me put my Twitter handle up for those of you that still do. And I'm using Twitter not because I think Twitter's great now. Uh, I'm using Twitter because whether Elon goes through with the buy or not, they lifted my shadow ban, so I reach people. And I use Twitter mainly for my Bitcoin content. And that's where the best discussion of Bitcoin is that I found in social media. I'm not really worried if Twitter sells my information because I have ways that make it more difficult for Twitter to sell my actual information if I really want to implement them. But I, 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 I'm not really worried about it. I, I don't think the biggest problem people have had with, um, with, with, you know, Facebook and, and other social media has been a privacy issue because if you want to be private, you use a fake name and you use a fake name and you use a VPN. And you don't use an email account that's directly associated with you. And you can be not perfectly. Somebody could figure it out. But you're pretty private. You're pretty private. Um, but 
the problem has been censorship. And the censorship has been my biggest issue. My biggest issue with Facebook was literally threatening to destroy groups that I had built of, you know, 10,000, 20,000, one group, a hundred thousand people in it. And they're going to, they're going to take the whole group down and destroy all of the knowledge that you guys have put together. That's why I walked away from Facebook. Um, I don't know. I think it's up to each of us to decide what platforms to use. I don't use Facebook, and I hear from people all the time, man, I'd like to do what you do, but I make money in Facebook Marketplace. I'm like, then make money in Facebook Marketplace. Um, I think in the end, I really think that there will eventually be more of these alternative social media sites that will get more use, but none of them have attracted enough people to really take over yet. And, and we'll see what they do. I, I have, you know, great hopes for float, but they've had some real hiccups in this, you know, rolling out their catamaran platform or whatever. It seems like they took a step back for a while. And, and frankly, it seems like it's hurt them and I don't know if they'll recover. I'll keep putting my content there, but it's, it's, it's a tough space to do business in when you think about the behemoths that you're competing against. So I think that we use the platforms that work for us while they work for us. What I don't want to see people do is become so vested in one that if they get banned or deplatformed, they lose everything that they work for. So diversification, I think, to me, is more important than that. Uh, next up, somebody asked me about suppressors. Said, hey, uh, I want to get a suppressor, but is it worth it? Is it worth the tax stamp, the money, the pain in the ass for a suppressor, uh, plus being on another list? Okay, I don't, the list thing is, is a non-starter for me. We're all on the list already. If you're even asking me that question, you're probably on five lists already. So uh, honestly, the person who passes the background check for a tax stamp is probably considered less of a threat uh, than the person that that wouldn't by the state. So I'm not worried about that. You know, the person was, was it worth the pain in the ass? Is it worth the hassle? That's up to you. Like, how much do you value a suppressor? And this is the biggest thing I would say. Go shooting with somebody that has a suppressor for the type of weapon that you would be using a suppressor for. Because there's a big difference in a, a, a suppressor for like a, a Mosquito 22, right, which is really cool. Like it's 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 almost James Bond level quiet, right, or a suppressor on a 308. There's a big difference in what suppressor means. There's a big difference between suppressing a subsonic round and suppressing a supersonic round where the supersonic round has its own crack. That's not really uh, directly related to the discharge of the weapon. So to make a decision about whether or not it's worth the money and the time commitment, you should know what you're buying before you get it. And you, if you have gun friends, you probably have somebody that owns them. The biggest advantage to suppressed rifles to me, like again, because this little guy back here, there's a 22 back here. I don't know if you guys can see it. Let me grab it. This little guy here, who, who I owe you know a big thanks to my my buddy David for. Uh, it, it does take a can, and with the right rounds, you don't hear anything, and, and that's kind of cool. But when we're sitting here and we're going to be talking about using something like a uh, a three hundred eight or something, it's not quiet. It's quieter. It's more convenient. It's less obnoxious. 
when you go to a range, uh, not necessarily a, a public range, but like you go to the range with your buddies and everybody there's shooting with suppressors and one guy's letting off with that one, it's almost rude because it's so much more obnoxious and sound of the people next to you on the range. It's more of a, a, a convenience at that level. Now, there are some things we can do with like subsonic 300 blackouts and stuff. It's really, really cool. Um, but, Just if you're going to get a suppressor, don't be of the mindset that I'm going to go get a suppressor. I'm going to take my 308 and it's going to go. Pew, pew, pew. That's not how it works. Every time, you know, you see the guy on TV and he the bad guy and he sneaks into the house and at the last minute he screws his suppressor. on. It's just so retarded. And then he works the action. It's like, oh, my God, who's had that experience? We're just like this is the dumbest. And then you see another one. You go, okay, no, there's dumber ones. Um, but then he goes and shoots the guy and he's shooting like a, like, and you know, it's not like subsonics or whatever. He's like a nine millimeter, 40 Smith and Wesson. It just, psh, psh, psh. that's, that's not how the shit works. So make sure you're setting the reasonable expectation and know why, why are you doing it? Are you doing it? Cause I, I politically just believe I have a right to do it. And if this is the thing that I have to do to have it, then I'm going to do that thing. because I want to have it. because I'm making a statement. Fine. If you're doing it because you like the convenience and the lower report, fine. If you want true stealth and you understand what it takes to get, Stealth or much stealthier discharge from a weapon, fine. Just know what you're buying. Like if somebody says to me, what car should I buy? Well, what kind of car do you want? What are you looking for in a car? Jack, you want a Challenger? Should I buy a car like yours? Do you want a really cool looking car that goes fast? If so, then consider it. If not, if you're looking for utility, you want a truck, right? I mean, th that's how you have to make these decisions. But I'm not worried about the list thing. Not at all. Um, next, uh, How to find like-minded people in rural areas was the question I got. And I just want to tell you that somebody did offer them uh, some advice. A, a person responded and said that next door, feed stores and civic organizations have been great for them in their rural area. But I want to start out with something. You move to a rural area and you're looking for like-minded people. Most people in rural areas are like-minded people. That's why they choose to live in rural areas. Now, Skeeter, the meth dealer that's making meth out of batteries in a Gatorade bottle down by the trailer park may not be a like-minded person. But make sure you're not just looking at somebody because of the way they wear their hair or the tattoos they have and assuming they're a Skeeter, right? Like, just go talk to people. And I think one of the best places to talk to people was right in that answer there, feed stores. I don't ever go to the feed store without meeting somebody. I mean, it is the easiest place I've ever. It's easier to start a conversation with somebody in a feed store than it is in a singles bar, in my opinion. Um, being the the plant geek that I am, and 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 having learned so much about gardening, I go in the spring and I see people buying plants and they're asking somebody questions, and I can tell the person to answer. I can't not. I'm like, hey, do you want to know some some opinions on this? or what have you, like, that's always been a place. And I don't generally take those to relationship level, but you could. Hey, you know, I'm hanging out. I think one of the biggest things that you can do to start building community is start, like, meetup groups. And they don't have to necessarily be on meetup.com. Like, you can run little things. Like, get the Jeff Lawton urban permaculture thing. Rent the local civic server uh, center uh, for a couple hours one night during the week. And promote it. See if you can get some people that would be willing to keep an eye on people's kids so they can bring their kids and kind of market it for about two or three weeks. Don't say, I had a prepper group and we're going to get out. We're going to freedom sell it. And 
just bring people in that are interested, you know, and it doesn't have to be that one. It could be like Mark Shepard stuff on Regen Ag or, or anything like teach a class and invite people. Everybody, you know, you could do a class like a, a, a two hour class, like half of it is on wicking bed gardens and the other half is on canning. And again, if you can find some local teenagers, you can spot a few bucks and have kind of a little daycare area going on. So bring your kids. It'll be all right. Put out some snacks, even garbage snacks. It doesn't matter. Everybody that walks in that door is of some form of like mind with you or they wouldn't be there. One of the best places I ever met people is going to sound odd. It was, and it was a bad accident. So I wasn't great that it happened, but it, it did kind of show that sometimes people live to each other, don't talk next to, live next door, but don't talk to each other. When we lived in Arkansas, we had a, our house, just to kind of paint the picture for those who don't know, was about three miles from our mailbox. And on our road, there were about 13 houses on, on the branch of our road. But there was a good hundred houses back in kind of that whole area, several thousand acres. And most of us had never spoken to each other, not because we didn't want to, but because everybody was there to be left alone. Well, we had a wreck, bad wreck on the road coming up, and everybody that was going either up or down the road pulled over and tried to help and make sure anybody that was coming through could get through, and there would be no wrecks, and everybody started talking to each other, and we all realized, like, shit, we all need to talk to each other more because everybody here is kind of cool. Everybody here kind of has the same attitude. And I think that if you just, instead of waiting for someone to have a wreck and go down the side of a mountain and, and hopefully not end up uh, passed away, these people survived, but it was pretty nasty. Uh, maybe you can orchestrate something a little bit better and just get people into the same area at the same time. And a lot of that will take care of itself, but you, you're, you're in a good position there. Um, Another person said, how do I identify my best talents so that I can monetize them? And so often people have a hard time identifying your talents. Don't start, first of all, don't start with your talents. Start with your passion. Explore your passion and develop talents around the things that you are passionate about. Think, and people say, well, I don't know my passion. I think it's maybe a bad word to use because passion is like this thing I give myself over to. Like when I, when I met my wife, I was passionate. For her. And as I fell in love, I became passionately in love with her. And we've built a life because of that. But it didn't start out that way, right? Like when I first met my wife, it's like, oh, she's cute. And her exact comment to, to the person that was with her when she met me, she's like, I could date him. Right? That's how that started out. Like there was an interest level. So explore the interest. Through exploring the interest, find the passion. In, in pursuing the passion, develop the talent. Then if it makes sense to market the talent, market the talent. But don't try to force the talent out of the passion just to have a marketable skill, just so you can have a marketable skill, because that's like going out husband hunting, ladies, right? Like, I remember a gal I dated well before I met Dorothy, uh, blind date set up. We're 15 minutes into this date. We're having dinner. Excellent conversation. Really nice girl, pretty. Goes right out of nowhere, she says, so are you looking to get married? Not to you. I didn't say that. That was, but that was the first thing into my mind. Like you're trying to force this. And then I'm like, you know, don't be a dick. And then it became in another 10 minutes of conversation. It became apparent that this woman was husband hunting and wanted something quick. No wrong. And it killed it. And I think that when we pursue our passions, 
for the purpose of profit in the same forced manner, we can disrupt that. Then the other thing is maybe you don't need your talent. Maybe you just need to recognize market opportunity and capitalize on it. You don't have to have a talent or be passionate if you have a sizable property to put two or three tiny homes in and start renting them out on Airbnb. You don't need any talent for that. You just need some basic knowledge. You don't have to build it. You can hire somebody to build it, and if it pays itself back in 18 months, that's a good ROI. And you can develop a monthly cash flow off something like that. And once you know how to do it, you can replicate it because you have the knowledge. But you don't have to have talent in, the, in like the ability to make a beautiful knife like Patrick Rorman does to, to execute that. So balance all of that would be my advice on that one. Uh, next up, somebody said you mentioned in a comment on social media something about the Georgia Guidestones being blown up. And that you said that it would be a perfect opportunity for the media to capitalize on their whole right-wing terrorist uh, uh, you know, narrative, but they won't because they don't want to talk about what the Georgia Guidestones are, where they came from, and what they say, because it would be inconvenient. And he said, until this just happened, I had never heard of the Georgia Guidestones. So what are they? I'm not going to go deep into them today. There's a lot of conspiracy theory shit around them. They are a very odd thing. And people talk about them like they are a plan for the future of mankind. They came across to me very much like some sort of religious cult-like concept that there would be a giant cataclysm that would reduce the population of the planet to a very low number of people. And they were supposed to be guide stones, a road map for that remnant. And it was, I think the population limit was like half a million people. And that sounds like a lot of people. Planet Earth, that is not a lot of people. That's not a lot of people. A half a million people. There's more than half a million people in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Dallas-Fort Worth has 6.8 million or something like that, the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area, 6.8 or like 7.2 million now, actually, right? Fort Worth, which people think is a lot bigger than it is because Texas is a, in some ways kind of weird in how small some of the city limits actually are. Fort Worth proper is not a very big place. That's like 1.1 million people. And unless you're talking rush hour on the highway, when you go into Fort Worth, you do not feel crowded, and it's not that big a place. So it's not a very practical thing. But the weird thing is no one knows who built them or where they came from, and they just weren't there one day and kind of there the next day. And they're in Georgia, hence Georgia Guidestones. And it would be a really uncomfortable conversation for a leftist media to have, or Fox News, right? Fox News, I saw Tucker Carlson talked about it for about 37 seconds, but never explained what they were. And I don't know that the Georgia Guidestones are the smoking gun that, uh, okay, Liberty Meat Solution says it's not 500,000, it was half a billion, 500 million. All right, that's more in the population of the United States. I still think that's an, that's a lot of people that got to go. So I'm, yeah, I'm no expert on this, but I would say that uh, half a billion people isn't enough for the global elite to sustain the, their uh, their tax farm. Uh, so I, I don't really know what the genesis of this is, but it would start a lot of conversations if the media actually covered it at any meaningful level that I don't think any of them are interested in having. So you can learn more by googling Georgia Guidestones. 
Uh, somebody asked about the Dutch farmer revolt. What's, what, why is it happening and what's happening? And I have a link in the notes you can check after this live feed ends uh, that gives the basics of it if you haven't heard anything about it. But basically, the Dutch farmers are pissed off. And it's really more what we would think of as ranchers than farmers because this is mostly a cattle production issue. And a huge number of projects that were approved. Now, you have to understand that other countries don't necessarily work uh, don't work the way that ours do. So there's a lot of things that you can do in the United States. If you own a piece of land, when it comes to agriculture, you just do it. You might ask the, the government for a grant or something like that and have to apply for it. But most of the things that you want to do, you can just do. It's a matter of what you do with the product where they really get into regulation, like how it's slaughtered and where it can go and stuff like that. In a lot of these other countries, like, I mean, In the UK, for instance, just trying to get a little yard you can garden, they call it an allotment, and it, it's a it's a process. It's a colonoscopy from the state to be able to get your hands on one. And so there was a ton of projects for the ag industry in Holland that uh, that had been approved. And all of a sudden, to meet nitrogen limits, so we're not putting out too much nitrogen, Uh, with this EU treaty to to bring in the new world, right, of, of ecologically friendly, a lot of them were turned down. It's going to destroy the economic viability of, of, of doing this uh, for the Dutch farmers. So they're pissed. And they're doing things like spread manure all over the road. They're tearing some shit up with some tractors and all. And it, here's the thing about it. It's the kind of thing you want to, you want to cheer on from an emotional and a moral standpoint. You want to see the people that are being shit on by the state rise up and push back. The problem is these things tend not to work because whether you realize it or not, people would say dumping 40 tons of shit on the highway is not an act of violence. We just had somebody here, I think it was in California, a gentleman trying to get to his job. He was on probation from prison. And these climate activist assholes blocked the highway off. And he was there pleading with these people, please open one lane. I'm going to go back to prison if I don't get to my job. And he didn't. And he's back in prison because he didn't get to his job, which is bullshit because any judge with a brain that belongs on a bench should be like, I see what happened. Okay. But no. And maybe it will eventually, but this is bullshit. And now that one of the people that's in the video telling this guy basically to go screw himself is raising funds to help him get his life back on track for the problem he caused. Guy's a piece of crap. So blocking roads is an act of violence. Blocking roads is an act of violence. What, what ha you know, you don't think it is until, you, well, what happens if, uh, your, your, your loved one dies because they can't get to the hospital because of shit like this? So I'm not putting them down, and I understand why we have this problem, right, and why people want to respond this way and how it's a natural reaction, but it is an act of violence. And here's where the problem comes in. What is the state? If I said, give me a definition of the state, one-word definition, and you really had to distill it down to one de definition, the state is violence. The state is violence. If you're going to use violence against the state, it has to be an all-out, full-on revolution slash insurrection. 
It's the only way that it has ever worked in human history. Right? You, we, when, when, the, when the colonists threw the tea into, the, in, into the, the, the harbor in Boston, it was to drum up support. It didn't have any meaningful impact on the situation other than that. It was to lead to the path of revolution. And when it was a revolution, it was two sides killing the shit out of each other until one side submitted and the other side declared victory. And that's the only way it's ever worked. And it's the last resort. And that's part of the lessons of the American Revolution, that the founders did everything they could to avoid it before committing to it. And because people today have known such a world of peace, because conflict's always fought, fought by proxy by other people far away from you, they have a propensity to dive into violence without knowing what the hell they're doing. So that's a problem, too. But when you engage the state with violence, you're playing their game. The best thing that the farmers and the Dutch farmers could do and all the other farmers in the EU that wanted to show solidarity with them is just go, okay, I don't think I'm going to produce anything then, which is hard because you, you starve yourself out, which is why I think we need to build our farms, and we just don't do this anymore. We've gone mass, grand-scale agriculture everywhere. Farms should be small holdings, 40 acres, probably about as big as the average farm needs to be. You want to have a 1,000 acres? I Don't begrudge it. Go ahead and do it. But I think like an aggregate average is about 40 acres. Maybe 120. It, it might be even better. There's a lot of squares in Oklahoma sold on 120s. Um, and then the first thing you do when you build your farm, you feed your you feed your family and you feel, feed your employees, employees slash contractors. And you create a co-op. And you build your own circular local economy first. So when shit like this happens, you're like, okay, we're not going to produce. Is that an act of violence? In a way, because people are going to go hungry, but no one has a right to your labor and your output, in my view. So this is, this is different than impeding the free travel of another individual. And it gets attention a lot first. And it's, it's often interesting. It's often interesting to me that the problem is the solution. And here, What they're worried about is too much nitrogen from cow shit. Well, what if you took the cow shit and properly composted the cow shit instead of dumping it on the road and used it for the vegetative agriculture or to improve pasture? There's not, see, this is the thing. There's not a lot of pasture in, in this particular part of the world, right? There's a lot of CAFO action, and that's kind of a big part of what's going on here. So you have to have a radical change. But the waste stream of the cow is not a pollutant unless we allow it to become one. When we move cattle in a rotational grazing system and we do it properly and we've accounted for runoff, we put carbon in the soil, which is what all these people claim that they want. Of course, they are not interested in putting carbon in the soil. They're interested in taxing you for every single thing that you do. And this is why, you know, I get labeled a climate change denier or whatever, but I'm more interested in fixing the environment than any of these freaking assholes that are talking about this shit. I'm more concerned with the environment than they are. I'm the one proposing solutions, and not me alone. There's millions of us proposing these solutions, and they're immediately obvious. I'm thinking about doing a show next week called, called Jack Solves Major Problems in Five Minutes. Where you give me a problem that's a political problem, and I have to do it within the framework of the political system in the United States, like let's say student loan debt. And I get five minutes to articulate a solution to it that's better than everything we have right now. 
and picking like 10 things and doing that with her, five things and doing that. Cause I know I can, which show, not, that doesn't show me that I'm show anybody that I'm smart. It shows you how little they care about the problem. They don't care about the problem at all, even a little bit. They care about capitalizing on problems. See, we look at a problem, the average person who's not a freaking sociopath, when you see a problem, the first thing you say to yourself is what? How do I fix it? And if you profit through the solution, that's fine, but the goal is fix the problem. You know what a sociopath that wants to control people says? How do I capitalize on it? And then what happens when they successfully capitalize on it? Do you think they want it to go away? Do you, do you think they want it to go away? I don't think they want it to go away. You know, they said they taxed cigarettes because they, because they wanted to disincentivize people from smoking cigarettes because it was bad for you. Do you think that's what they really did? Do you think once the money started rolling in from the tax when they're like, holy shit, we can charge freaking $10 a pack tax and they'll still pay it. It's a drug. Who knew? Do you think they didn't just say, hey, money, 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 control, control, control. That's where we're at in the world right that. This, this is, and we're gonna, we're gonna, I think we're gonna do that hanging laundry. Ah, uh, moving on. And, uh, Sam Cole says the Guidestones were built by Herbert Kinston, a radical Christian. Like I said, I'm not an expert on these. I, I, I don't, maybe that's not the real mystery. I think the mystery is who paid for it and how did they end up there? Cause I do think that the designers know. So thanks for, for pointing that out. Um, it was asked about pros and cons of standardization on a homestead. Like if I standardize on all the walls or I standardize on like two sizes of PVC or something like that, um, do I lock myself in? No. No. Here's how I feel about standardization. The reason I would standardize on a power tool line would be because I have one battery system. And people say you have adapters. Great. They get some adapters for some other battery platforms for your standardized system because the battery is the expendable, right? So it's a standardization and then how you deal with exceptions. So like I standardized on my PVC size, so PVC sizes. There, there's still some legacy three quarter here, but except for like large return lines that are two inches, all my general PVC plant is half inch and one inch. It's sufficient to do everything that I want to do. And that way I can just order bags of fittings and some adapters that, you know, step up and step down adapters to, to some odd sizes. And 90% of the problems that can occur of the PVC plant on my property, I have it on the shelf and I can fix it immediately. And this is where standardization shines. When you take your consumables or your common breakables, and you stock reserve for them. That's where standardization shines. And then we use adaptation outside of standardization where it makes sense. For instance, I wanted a Brad, uh, a Brad nailer. I have the DeWalt uh, system, great tools. A DeWalt Brad nailer is as much as a cordless DeWalt framing nailer, and it shouldn't be. And I was able to buy two Porter cable, two different size Brad nailers and backup batteries and everything plenty good for the amount I'm going to use it for a fraction of the cost of just the DeWalt Brad nailer. Okay. I'm buying Porter cable for that one thing. And I, now if I was a contractor 
and I used a cordless brand, a brad nailer four or five times a week, I would have bought the DeWalt. So you adapt to your own situation. I use a brad nailer five times a year. I'm not, I don't even do a lot of like wood shop work or whatever anymore. So like, yeah, I needed one. This made sense. It paid for itself in two projects as far as I was concerned. And so that's how I look at standardization. You go standard to the thing that you can back up. And then that way you have a shelf. So I standardized on the Danner 2000 gallon per hour pump as my large pump. I standardized on the active aqua 550 gallon small pump as my small pump. Everything here, except for a few legacy ones as I tested stuff out since it's working, why change it is one of those two pumps. I have a shelf in my garage. I have two 2000 gallon pumps. I have two, two 550s in the box, unopened, never touched, sitting on the shelf. And I just realized that's a problem. I should open them up, plug them in and make sure they work, and put them back in the box and put them on the shelf. If one breaks, somewhere in the system. If one just needs some TLC, but it's running really slow, it needs to be cleaned out, it's early in the morning, I'm tired, I got to get in here and get to work, whatever, and, I, and a fish are going to die if, or the plants are going to die if I don't replace it, take the one out of the box, pull it apart, stick the new one in, everything fits, all the lengths, everything's the same, plug it in, Take the one that needs some TLC, set it in the sun, let it dry the gunk out, and deal with it later. And that is the beauty. That is the absolute beauty of standardization. And so the problem with standardization comes if you get into a situation where you can't get the consumable component and you expend all of your supply. So I think you have to judge that risk, right? Uh, next up. Would I buy a home now? I'm getting that question a lot. We all know why. Real estate market is going to crash. So here's the problem with this. There's no good answer to this question. You have to make the decision for yourself. You're buying a home. You know the cost of servicing the debt that you're going to have. Are you comfortable with that home for that cost of debt service? And if you don't, if you don't have a large shit ton of capital where you can basically go in and buy the house for cash or go in stupid heavy, like 50%, and you're only financing half the house. This is a problem you have. Look at where interest rates are. Interest rates haven't been where they are right now since I think early 2000s, late 90s, somewhere in that range. And I don't remember the exact number, but I think it's something like for every one point the interest rate goes up, the average person buying a home can afford about $20,000 in home or maybe even more or less. So we looked at, like, we guys saying, we want to refinance your home. We called the guys up that sent us the thing, and they said, never mind, as soon as they heard our interest rate. We have an interest rate of, like, 2.7% or something like that on this house. And it doesn't, and they're like, do you want to take cash out of your house? We're like, nope. They're like, yeah, we can't help you. Never mind. Sorry. We didn't mean to bother you. They didn't even try. Right. So you have this rising interest rate thing and you have to ask yourself, does the Fed have the balls to hold it there or do they have the balls to do what really needs to be done and push it higher to cap all this inflation? So you can get into a situation where like, damn, that house is cheap. That house was four thousand dollars two years ago and I can get it for two fifty right now. This is a deal. But if you have to use debt and it costs you the same amount of money to buy it. Because of payments. And then you're betting, well, I'll refinance someday. You're betting that the economy will recover, rates will go down, and your credit will stay strong. 
So that sucks. The other side of it is this person asked the question, already sold his house? But what if you didn't? Now you got to sell your house and you got to buy another house while prices are still going up some and interest rates are climbing. So it's harder to sell and it's harder to buy something else. So I think this is very individual. Like, <laughs> would I pour a bunch of money into the stock market right now? No, I would not. Uh, I, if I had reserve capital right now that was allocated toward talk, stocks and securities, I would sit on it because you're going to get some more opportunity to buy, at least some, if not a lot. Um, a house is different. You got to have a place to live. And then the nature of the problem becomes, well, how long do interest? Because here's the other thing, right? Interest rates between five and seven percent on a mortgage are the norm. You don't believe that because we've lived for almost 20 years with it being down in the, the two to three, four was high and come back down. So there's people with mortgages like 1.9. That was all artificial quantitative easing to buy a bull market, uh, during all of the shit that they've screwed up since freaking uh, the Y2K, uh, era busts. Everything's about 2008, but they forget about the dot com bubble. And we've been in this artificially stupid, cheap market. So 6% on a mortgage seems astronomically high right now, but it is, it is, go look at mortgage rates going back to 1950s. It's a very, very common thing. So that alone can crash the price, but not cut the payment. So you have to make the decision individually on this, and you have to think less about the market crashing and more about what do I want What is the budget that I know I can easily handle? And that's both underlying cost, but the servicing of the debt on the property uh, as well. And just, I've always said, if you're comfortable with a $2,500 mortgage, shoot for $2,000 to $2,200 maximum. Cut your, where you're comfortable, where you, th I can handle, I know I'm okay. And cut that by 10 to 20% minimum. Minimum. Put that cushion in there and then make sure there's reserve capital to deal with a shortfall. That's all I can say about this because this is a, it's a trap. It's an interest rate trap. It's a credit availability trap. And it's a sell trap. So the other side of it is if you're sitting on a house you really don't want to keep right now, right? And, and you're thinking, I want to sell it. Well, now you put yourself in limbo if you don't already have another property. But if you wait to sell it until it crashes and then the other properties come down, you're back to a net zero if you're lucky. But we could be looking at 8.5% interest rates by then. And the answer is nobody knows. Nobody knows. My gut. They don't have the stomach for this, and they're going to start dropping interest rates again. But... I'm not betting on it, and I don't think you should either. Next, um, help, my ducks are not laying. They're Muscovy ducks, and we just moved to a new property. I already answered this one by email, but this is a common problem that people have. Um, this person said, we got ducks. They were laying. We moved, and all of a sudden, they quit laying. First of all, ducks don't like change. They're like Garth from the Wayne and Garth you know, thing. We fear change. So a, a, a rapid change in the life of a duck can result in them going off lay for a couple, three days to a week. or I've even seen it up to two weeks in certain birds. 
But in the end, a duck gonna ovulate, and if it ovulates, it gotta poop out the egg. So that's a minimum, you know, like that can be as little as like changing their diet. I've seen you change their food because you have to go to a new source and they might go three or four days without laying or not laying to the level you would expect. Or sometimes when they start, like you have a caretaker and they don't know them and it's a stranger and I don't trust you and I don't know you and they might go off lay for a day or two. It happens. That's not the problem here. The key is the species. These are Muscovy ducks, right? Muscovy ducks. Muscovy ducks are kind of goose-like. Uh, they do not lay year-round. No, no animal, no bird lays completely year-round, but they really don't lay year-round. What muscovies will do, you come in early spring, and I'm talking like February, they become egg fountains. They blow eggs like crazy. They'll, they'll do two a day sometimes. They'll double clutch some days. And then it'll ebb off, and it'll stop. And then usually, not always, but usually, because they're, they have enough of a, in their native habitat, they can basically raise young year round, but there's still optimal times based on daylight, uh, in those climates, which is when it's raining basically to, to raise another clutch. They'll usually pop out another very bursty, very high rate, but less total number of eggs. And then they're like, see you in February. So this person just bought their ducks and they're like, they got the bounty and sold them to us after they're done laying. Well, they're not done laying forever. Muscovies will give you between 100 to 120 eggs a year. They just give it to you in a relatively short period of time rather than more spread out. The other thing is we're not there yet, but for most of us, we're heading into the molt. And when we go into the molt, molt your birds will stop laying because they're growing back their feathers and they don't have the energy to put into an egg. And then as you go into your fall, you'll come back into laying with your chickens, your mallard breed ducks, et cetera, but they won't have the volume that they did pre-molt through the spring. And it's just a cyclical thing. And I, I don't think the person that sold these people, the Muscovies, did it for that reason, though they may have. But I don't think it's a dirty thing to do. It's a pretty common thing knowing that people, you know, that, that Muscovies will do this, that they have that cyclical thing. It's just what, what they do. Uh, next up, item of the day. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to do this today. Just check out tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I was going to bring it up, but it, what I've got today is a cable matters outlet. I had that just a couple weeks ago. It's on sale again, about 10 bucks. You plug it in, you take your faceplate off, you plug it in your outlet, you put the screw back in it, and you go from two outlets to six outlets plus two USBs. They're on sale for 10 bucks. One of the slickest little tools. You can go to tspaz.com. Click on latest reviews and you can see it. And remember, you can always help support us if you do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Let's take some of y'all's questions and comments. The Real Life says, when pressure canning meat, does the liquid need to cover the product? Yes. My opinion, anyway, yes. And every recipe I've ever read says that. Um, I could be wrong about that, but here's my rule with pressure canning. Follow a known recipe and you're really following more a timeline for what you're doing so i don't care if it says put in a sprig of freaking thyme and you don't right i don't care if like that's not what i mean by recipe i mean that you're doing cubed beef you cover it with hot liquid you do the hot canning method and you pressure can at this pressure for at least this long and when you go to do that if you're a fan of electric canning like i am with the shard carry whatever the hell they want to call it now canner um, you'll see those places all say not to use them. Wrong. There's nothing wrong with them. 
half this audience would be dead by now with as many of them have sold through T-SPAS. Mike says, bookstore on the seventh floor. Ah, uh, that would be Dealey Plaza, and that would be in Dallas. Though so this is in Fort Worth. This is a really cool bookstore. I just can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Uh, I'm surprised I didn't know about it, where it would be in the downtown Fort Worth. But, yeah, if you all want to come to that Bitcoin meetup, check in about an hour the uh, show notes for this episode if you're in Fort Worth. I think you would enjoy it. It looks like a really cool place. Mark Thompson says, deep water culture with wire cages for each critter. It's an interesting idea. He's, of course, talking about the giant river prawns. Uh, I, I think something to that effect can be done. And, you know, here's my thing with them. These things get about a foot long. And you end up with an edible piece of shrimp and a foot long one that's about seven inches. Like two are a good size. That's like two small lobster tails in, in quantity of meat. And they're delicious. How many do you need to raise to make it worth doing if it's like, it's like what Dave does, right? Like if it's something you put on the table for Christmas and New Year's or whatever. I don't know. Maybe, you know, and if you have a family of two, like your couple, like me and Dorothy, and you, you raise 50 of those a year, that's what, 12 meals, two a piece? If you're using one, like a surf and turf, you know, it might be worth doing. Um, not something I have a lot of experience with, though, and I try to only talk about things I have experience with. Uh, Adam says, Jack, did you watch the HBO documentary on Anarchapulco? I have not done so yet, but I plan to. Uh, Crystal says McMurray Hatchery has them straight run only, but she said there were six bucks. We're talking about the American breast chickens. I'm going to check into that. Maybe I can. They probably have like a waiting list I can get on. Survivalizer says, in your opinion, is Phoenix a city you'd recommend to get out of? Yeah, yeah, I think there's enough problems in Phoenix, but it, it would, it would be, eh, I don't, it'd be, you know, maybe. It's up to you. I would get out of Phoenix, but for a totally different reason. I, as hot as it is here, I, I couldn't live in Phoenix personally. I just couldn't do it. And you save your bullshit about it's a dry heat. A dry heat applies to 100 degrees in Montana. It doesn't apply to 120 degrees in Phoenix. Um, As powder keg cities go, the last time I was in Phoenix would have been about 2003, and it was a pretty good place to be. Overall, it seems to have declined in quality of place to exist. If you said, Jack, you can live in Phoenix or San Phoenix, well, you can live in Phoenix or Los, no, Phoenix, or you can live in Phoenix or Seattle, Phoenix, Right. Like those types of cities, like I would always pick Phoenix from a socioeconomic standpoint over them. But it does seem to have had a significant decline. Now, if you want to know a cool place to live in Arizona, go north out of Phoenix, get to Sedona and keep going. And if you can find something, you know, because not a lot of places to live, but if you can find somewhere in what's called the Black Oak Canyon, that's a hell of a beautiful place to live. But in the end, we often decide where we want to live for ourselves. K-Bonk says, pioneering trees, question mark. Pioneering trees are tough, hardy, generally nitrogen-fixing trees, trees that grow first in an ecosystem when there are no other trees. Um, nitrogen fixers that are native to North America are things like honey locust and black locust, mesquite trees, hackberries, I consider a pioneering tree, um, a restorative tree in the ecosystem. A tree that's productive that I think really is a pioneering tree that people don't 
generally think of one. There's some of the most hardy trees I have on my property are mulberries. Mulberries are incredibly hardy trees. Trees that, when I say back of the swale, you're pioneering your hardy trees, drought tolerant. So you're more drought tolerant trees go on the back of the swale because it's, it's drier in general throughout the season than those in the front or the berm itself. Just that's what I'm talking about there. And again, generally in permacute culture, we're referring to, um, we're referring to nitrogen fixing trees, lucana, acacia, leguminous trees. K-Bong also says, welcome to the crazy dog breed, by the way. I'm not sure what he means by that. The dog that we're getting from Joel is, in fact, a German shepherd. I thought, just by the way she looked, she was a shepherd mal cross, but turns out she's just a sable shepherd, so she has a mal look to her, but she is... uh uh uh, uh, pure shepherd. Jason says, Jack, when is your course coming out and what will be the estimated cost? Estimated cost will be $500. It probably won't be till the end of summer because I got a lot of stuff I'm trying to get done here. Mike Roth, again, he gave the $20 super chat today and I just want to say thank you for that, Mike. He said, here's a couple bucks to replace what your new puppy decides to chew on. Uh, Dorothy did go out and get her some chew toys and stuff like that and a blanket and a collar. Uh, Crystal says, my 4-H group turned into a community group because the state 4-H was being dicks. We do homesteading stuff and dairy goat stuff. You could start something like that in a rural area. I agree. Just always, when you're trying to build relationships, lead with the relationship. And so, I mean, one of the things I miss about Pennsylvania, we had rod and gun clubs. It's basically a bar. But the common interest was hunting and fishing. And when you went to the Rod and Gun Club and sat down and, you you know, these were like, sometimes they were tied in with like the local fire departments and stuff like that. So I'm sure it's more now. But back then, like a beer might have been 50 cents because they're basically, it's like a beer co-op for the bar, you know, and then the bartenders and all those always make their money on friggin' tips and shit. And so you, you sit down and have a 50 cent yingling and you talk to anybody around you and they at least have some, some interest in the whole Rod and Gun thing. And so whatever, wherever people come together, the thing that brings them together is a common interest. If you want to meet Christians, go to church. If you want to meet Methodists, don't go to the Baptist church, go to the Methodist church. Right? You know, if you want to meet Catholics, go to Pennsylvania. Every other person's a Catholic, right? So just go where the people are that are interested in the thing that you're interested in, I think is good advice. Uh, Sam Cole says, supersonic 308 suppressed is loud but still hearing safe. And that's what I was getting at, right? Like, so suppressors are often, you know, more about hearing protection than anything else. And Hanging Laundry says, Jack solves problems in five minutes would be a great for sharing. Please do it. You know, and I'll, what I'll finish up with there is that's one of the things I really like about Fountain.fm. Get the app, guys, even if you're not a Bitcoin person. The clips thing, the only thing is I think they're getting overrun with new people because when you make a clip, you can export it as a little flash video, and I've been uploading it to the Bitcoin Breakout channel, all the clips out of my videos. But you can make clips, and you can download the audio, and you can upload those to social media. Or, like I said, you can make your own playlist, or you can share them native on Fountain. So the person doesn't have to have the app. It'll just give you a link, and the person can go to that link and listen to a clip. So if you're listening to a show, and you're like, God, I'd like just that that two minutes, it it is so simple to do. Anybody can do it. Even me. I mean, literally you hit clip in the app and it, like I said, it little thing spins and it pulls up, it makes a transcript of the whole episode. 
And if you're listening when you do it, it, go, it jumps right to the point that you're listening to. And you just select your top, your, your text blocks. And if like one of the text blocks has some stuff in it you don't want, you highlight it and you hit cut and you hit save and then you give it a name and hashtag it if you want to and hit publish. And that's it. You can make clips and not just me. I know a lot of y'all listen to other podcasters. I'm not your one and only. I don't expect that. I'm not that good. You know, I'm not Joe Rogan. And, uh, by the way, if you want to listen to Joe Rogan, he's on fountain.fm. Like pretty much everybody that's in Apple long term and Spotify and all that is, is in value for value as well. Cause when Adam Curry built the podcasting 2.0 directory, they just yanked everything out of the Apple directory. And I think it, it rechecks every so often and keeps updating itself like that. Uh, but definitely give fountain.fm a shot. And if you want to do some clipping, go learn how to do it. Cause I'm going to tell you something. I ain't figured exactly the logistics out yet. But I'm planning to give away, probably in August, one million Satoshis. And what you're going to have to do to get some Satoshis is clip. So go learn how to do it because it's probably going to be the case because I'm going to do this manually because Fountain hasn't automated a way for me to reward you like this yet. Probably going to be like 50 people. The first 50 people to complete the mission will each get, I'm thinking like 2,000 sats, and that will leave like another half million sats, and we'll do a drawing out of those 50. So go learn how to do it. Fountain.fm. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. American way a dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay there's a better way to do this let me show you a better way 